Change is good. Change is necessary. Change is terrifying. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. The world certainly doesn't lack for advice on how to enact change within business organizations. An entire industry thrives on doing just that. So why do 70% of all change initiatives fail? The answer is complex, but it starts with the fundamentals of human nature. As intelligent creatures, we hate change. It disrupts our comfortable patterns of life. It forces us to learn new things. And sometimes it results in our losing our jobs. How then do we build a path to organizational change in a world where, to be frank, change is a constant? We'll get answers today from my guest Mike Bentley, a human capital leader at Deloitte. We'll talk about crafting a workable plan, gaining the trust of employees, how best to motivate them, and even how to battle change fatigue. And we'll learn about the qualities of leaders who successfully achieve a dynamic culture that's open to change. So here is my conversation with Mike Bentley. Mike Bentley, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. Mike, as a person who has been completely obsessed with change management for a good part of his career, I think you are highly qualified to answer these questions. But to start with, we are hearing that 70% of all change initiatives fail for a number of reasons. And I'd like you to share with me what are some of the reasons why that is the case. Yes, Bob. So I think there's some key reasons for failure. Most of it's surrounding employee sentiment, the culture of the organization, and inadequate resources to deal with the change. And that is particularly prevalent in today's digital age, where having these things in place is very important. Well, I want to touch on each of those things you mentioned. Each one is worthy of a discussion in and out of itself. But let's start with the individual who's coming into the organization and driving change. I mean, obviously, it's got to be the person at the top. But I'm trying to understand, is this person just kind of walk into Dodge and do it all themselves, or, or do they get allies? I mean, how is the change initiative on a very human level at the leadership level first? Who is that individual, and how do they enact change from the get-go? Most important, the individual who's going to run change for an organization or bring change to an organization really does need to have a compelling vision. So a clear long-term roadmap for the change, and some very clear objectives about what they actually want to achieve. And that sounds really simple, but that is really important. So somebody who has the ability to set that out right from the get-go is vital for change to succeed. You know, they teach a lot of things in business school, but do they teach this? Is change management a skill to be acquired? Is it learned in school? And if it's not, how is it acquired? Well, I don't think it's necessarily learned in school, that's for sure. To acquire change management skill is really about thinking through how you would structure 
the approach. And that is one of the key tenets of change management. Change management is actually structuring a particular approach to change. The way I like to talk about change is that it's part art, part science. So there is definitely an art to understanding the organization, thinking about how you want to move things forward. But there's also a bit of science to change management. This is thinking through things like behavioral characteristics, how to nudge the right behaviors through the organization, understanding the culture of the organization. And so it's mixing those two components together to really be able to drive that. Now, not all of that needs to manifest in a particular individual, but what people need to have is an understanding of the different levers that they have at their disposal and bring in, in, in some cases, that external um, perspective to help get that balance of art and science right to move it forward. Let's start with employee sentiment as one of the reasons why change fails. Can you agree with me that people hate change? And if that's the case, why do they hate change? Fear seems to be a big deal. Is that the case? What is it in human nature that makes it so difficult to enact change? Bob, that's the, the million-dollar question. <laughs> All of us really get settled into the way we do things every day. And it becomes something where we develop a lot of comfort in everything that we do. And so inherently as human beings, when that comfort is kind of disrupted, then we start to feel unsettled. And when we feel unsettled, that is when various behaviors come out that are not necessarily conducive to actually achieving the result that we want. And so it's always very uncomfortable to manage through the process of change for those reasons. And employee sentiments if not managed correctly and expectations not managed correctly, that can be problematic for an organization that's actually driving change forward for the very reasons that I outlined. It may be people, for example, fearful of losing their job or maybe fearful of the fact that they've built up a particular skill in a particular area which is as a result of maybe a workaround or some kind of process that they've actually had to fix over the years. And that feels like it's their very reason to exist in the organization. And if you take that away and you change that, then where am I going to go? What am I going to do? What meaning do I add? And so all of those feelings and uncomfort kind of come to the surface. And that's what starts to kind of manifest in the way employees are feeling about change. When you are engaged by a client, the first day you walk into the door, I wonder if you are not viewed by employees as something akin to the boogeyman. Here's the outsider. Here's the guy who's going to mess things up. He's going to do all kinds of things, change our jobs. Maybe we're going to lose our jobs. How do you deal with that from a personal level, gaining the trust of an organization on that day that you come in to do your job? does definitely happen to me sometimes <laughs> when I go into an organization, there's that kind of perception. I think there's a relationship building component that takes place and also an understanding that what I am there to do is really to bring my experience and to facilitate and drive the process of change, not there to do it to the organization. It's to facilitate, partner with, be there to help guide through experience the changes that need to come about. And that takes a little bit of time, but it is a very helpful perspective to bring that kind of partnering with perspective versus the I'm there to actually administer the medicine, so to speak. 
messaging has to be vital. You have to have a way to implement this plan and convince the people who are going to be involved in it that it is of benefit to them. How do you propagate that message through an organization so that they know that this is all going to end well? Yeah, so I think there are kind of four components that we like to think about from this perspective. The first thing is the vision has to be compelling. So that vision has to really have attractive outcomes for the future state. The second thing is we need to have um, really strong stakeholder engagement. So regular involvement of key stakeholders, a lot of flow of program information, two-way feedback channels in place so that that message can flow backwards and forwards. We also need to make sure that any messaging has very clear impact delivery. What that means is, what are the changes to technology? What are the changes to individual roles? What are some of the new skill requirements that need to, to come out? And then lastly, it's all about reinforced expectations. Is there visible support by the executive team? Are there performance management implications built into the process? Are expectations being reinforced by local leaders? So the messaging component of this is really broken down into these four key areas that we use to make sure that it's being reinforced, that it is actually two-way, and that there is actually this kind of plan going forward that everyone can see and everyone is aware of. Opposition can take more than one form within an organization. You can get overt pushback from employees. That's one thing. But you also get this kind of passive-aggressive type of opposition. The acronym BOHICA, B-O-H-I-C-A, which stands for bend over, here it comes again. This is the attitude of so many people in an organization who have seen change management things come and go. And if they just keep their heads down and don't really cooperate, it'll all be over soon and it'll be back to normal. Again, how do you deal with that attitude? That sounds more difficult to cope with. The way we at Deloitte like to think about it is they are three key things to understand in the organization in order to help manage that. The first thing to understand is affiliation. So to which part of the organization does the employee feel most affiliated? That could be, for example, the branch office, it could be the department, it could be the particular function. At some point, somebody's going to feel highly affiliated to a particular part of the organization. The second thing to really understand is the operational leadership style that that individual is working in. So operational leadership means is it a very team-centric environment where everybody makes decisions collectively, or is it actually a very dictatorial environment where decisions are really driven from the top down? And then the third thing to understand is where are they on the spectrum of support? And to your point, people can be kind of holding change back or they can actually be promoting it. And the way I always like to think about it is if I had a table in the room and I said to everybody in the room, we can lift this table together using one finger, for example. What you'll get is some people that will come together and, and start figuring out how they can actually lift the table. There'll be some people that will stand around and talk about what a great idea it is to lift the table with one finger. Some people will use the opportunity to take a restroom break <laughs> and not participate at all. <laughs> and some others will sit on the table to try and prevent it from being lifted. We've done some research that really indicates that you need between 10 and 14% of people to actually get underneath the table and start lifting it 
in order for people to move. And what you find is if you can understand affiliation, so how am I going to best drive that commitment? Am I going to drive that commitment through a particular department, to a particular team? And then if I understand the leadership, so if I understand in this particular area, in order to drive that percentage of people to commitment, I'm going to need to get that department manager on board because that individual works in a much more dictatorial way, for example. So I'm going to need to, to work on that individual in order to actually move people to the point where they're actually working together to achieve the change. And that's where some of the science comes in, Bob, which is thinking about some of these behavioral aspects to be able to drive change in a more scientific way. I take your evocation of the table as largely metaphorical. But I wonder, sometimes organizations bring in a consultant and they start participating in these motivational exercises, which might literally involve the demonstration of the table metaphor. Uh, and some people <laughs> can love that kind of stuff, and some people can find it kind of corny and overly trendy. To what extent does that kind of mechanism come into an organization, or should it or should it not? I find metaphors sometimes work really well, but it really depends on the culture, to your point. Some organizations really respond well to examples where you can actually do something like a team exercise and, and have an experience together to make a point. Other organizations struggle with that, and it needs to be much more scientific-based, much more data-driven in those conversations. One of the things that I do is work with my clients to understand which way is going to be the best. And you may actually find that that may not be uniform across the organization. You may find some parts that are going to respond better to metaphors, examples, and other things to drive a common understanding. Again, to the issue of employee motivation, how important is it to kind of paint a picture of a burning bridge where we've got to move forward, we can't go back, this is absolutely necessary, we must move, versus a more benign kind of teamwork, kumbaya-ish sort of attitude? Does that vary from company to company, or do you have a philosophical uh, preference for one or the other? It really varies from company to company uh, how well that's going to work. Some companies, it's actually better to paint a picture of the bright and shiny future out front. So really to drive everybody to that kind of vision versus painting the burning platform versus the Kumbaya experience. It's all about really focused on where they want to go. Some other organizations, you really do have to drive and show that the platform is burning and that's going to be why we have to drive the change. And that's all got to do with the culture of the organization. And the way I like to think about culture is best defined as the way we get things done around here. And so dependent on the culture and how the organization tends to operate one of those, or maybe even a combination of those, is going to work. And that's something that we do through some assessment. We understand how that organization is best going to respond to the different techniques at play. Of course, employees in the organization aren't the only ones that need to be brought on board in a change management effort. You have to convince your investors, especially if that change might involve some rather radical transformation that might involve delayed profits or lower profits and not necessarily meeting your quarterly numbers because you're looking at taking a longer view of things. To what extent is that a challenge? Yeah, I think that can generally be a challenge, but that's where it comes down to having a really compelling vision and make sure that you're building that into the business case so that you can actually show the business benefit, the true value of driving that change. 
And that also manifests itself in how you actually track the change management journey, because one of the things you want to do is make sure that you're actually tracking to those benefits, that you're identifying really early on what the risks are, and you're managing adequately those risks through the transformation journey. Now, often change is driven by an individual, generally the CEO or someone who comes in with the help, perhaps, of an organization, consulting organization such as your own. But we see a lot of turnover in top executives these days in corporate America and elsewhere. When that individual leaves, do you often find that it's a challenge to keep the change going, that they take their vision with them and all of a sudden we're back to square one or somebody comes in with a whole different set of change prerogatives that takes everybody off in another direction in a head-spinning kind of way? Do you find that personality-wise that becomes a problem? I've seen that happen sometimes, and that's actually one of the things that I always talk to my clients about, which is obviously really important to have a strong leader who's going to bring about change in the organization, but it's equally as important to make sure that that strong leader really communicates and develops the vision for the change jointly with his or her team and compatriots in the organization so that the key tenants of that can continue to live past their tenure. And that's really important because ultimately, if it's been driven singularly by one person and and that vision hasn't been shared amongst the rest of the leadership, that can cause problems later down the line. And also, it doesn't allow really the best of the organization to shine through. It's through bringing all of those different points of view together that you actually create something that is truly compelling. You speak of inadequate resources. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that means, what kind of resources are needed, and where do they fall short in an organization that isn't doing this correctly? So what I often find is that organizations don't select the A-team to come to the table to drive change. What I mean by that is external consultants like myself, we can only really facilitate, help, assist, advise on the change. We can't actually drive it internally for the organization. That is something where we partner with and we work alongside people who are from the organization to drive that. And so what often happens is the transformation or change effort is kind of happening in parallel with day-to-day activities. And so you need to take people out of day-to-day activities and put them onto the transformation effort so that they can actually jointly drive that. And quite often, there's this real difficulty to take the very best people out of the organization to help drive the change effort, bring the A-team. And That is imperative for the success of the program of change, is bringing your very best people to bear on the thinking, because it is truly the future of your organization. So having the very best in the room, making those decisions is a critical area. And that is often where I see these things start to go wrong, where what we're doing is nominating people who are very capable, potentially, but may not be the most visionary or the most leadership-driven part of the organization. It's almost become a business cliche, this idea that change is not a goal, it's a journey, that it's always ongoing. And I guess on paper that sounds great, but on the other hand, you have these CEOs that say, if it ain't broke, break it, change for the sake of change. 
to what extent do you sometimes risk this idea of change exhaustion on the part of the company where people just throw up their hands and say, please stop, give us some breathing room, let us kind of collect ourselves. Don't you need to pace change in an organization even though we all can all agree that it has to be ongoing? One of the keys to that is to use modern data analytics to understand where change is happening and to really understand change fatigue. Because what often happens is most organizations today almost have two personalities. There's the personality, which is actually driving whatever they call businesses, and then there's the other personality, which is driving change. <laughs> and those two areas need to work side by side because I have to keep on changing to keep up with market forces, with regulatory environments, a number of different drivers that necessitate the continual change and innovation in an organization. But that, to your point, can sometimes be really overwhelming and that drives change fatigue where employees are constantly being inundated with all of these different changes. So I think using data to really get an understanding of, shall we say, the collisions between all of these different changes is really important. Here at Deloitte, we've actually created a tool set called Change Scout, and that tool set is actually based on the premise that change management is very akin to customer relationship management and marketing, but really turned internally focused on the organization itself. And one of the key components of Change Scout is saying, let's understand all of the different changes and impacts that are happening to our people. Let's understand how we're communicating those and actually identifying the overlaps so where you can see different change efforts that are actually starting to impact the same people at the same time. And then we're able to make a decision at a more senior level in the organization about how do we best coordinate those? Which ones are high priority? Do we get them to work together? And better manage the risk around that fatigue in that particular part of the organization. So it's numbers, it's psychology, it's hard skills, it's soft skills, it's skills difficult to put a finger on. But Mike Bentley, I want to thank you so much for sharing some of your decades of wisdom on this essential issue of change management in organizations. Thank you very much for being with us today. Bob, thank you very much for the opportunity. That was my conversation with Mike Bentley of Deloitte, talking about how to craft successful change management strategies. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where you post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.